Hello. Hope everybody's doing okay. Good to see you all this evening. Glad to be together. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 30. Wait. Oh, I'm so proud of y'all. That was a test. Y'all need to know, many of y'all already know and y'all been so kind, but yesterday was my birthday. So obviously I said Exodus 30 because I've already got one foot in the grave myself. Can't remember anything and uh, it's already beginning. So that's what happened right there. But yeah, and many people have asked. So let me explain this. Allison, I don't know if she's in here yet. Um, there's this thing called Facebook. Hopefully you haven't heard of it. But uh, it does exist. And I, I don't have a Facebook account. Now some of y'all may think that's crazy. I take it as a badge of honor. And so there was a time, oh, Allison got one. And she has this to share, and just so it is a way to keep pictures and kind of show, and you can go back and look and all that kind of stuff. Well, many people back in the day started trying to contact me through Allison's Facebook because they act as if that's the only way to get in touch some, with somebody at some point. And so Allison decided, well, let me put Josh on my Facebook account, and it's Allison or Josh and Allison Powell. And so when she did that, she changed the birthday to my birthday, okay? Because I guess that was just her being sweet. And uh, then, is she in here before I say anything that's out of line? She's still out there. Good, I got some time. So I said, I don't want a Facebook account. You can take my name off of there, and I don't want one. So she took it off of it. But since she changed it already one time, they won't let her change the birthday back. So anybody that knows us knows that Allison's birthday is January the 10th. My birthday, which kicks off January 10th, kicks off my birthday week, which is January 17th. Y'all see how that works? Hey, Al, I'm talking about us. Um, so that's how that, that's what happened. So many people thought yesterday was her birthday because Facebook says today's Allison's birthday, but Allison's birthday is January 10th. Mine's the 17th. I know it's confusing, but y'all will deal with it. Okay. And there's really nothing else we're going to do about it, but I'm just explaining it. And that's why it happened. Thank you so much for the birthday wishes. I am, uh, plenty. I, I'm holding on to the fact that I still have a few years before 50 which is really hard to believe. In my mind, I'm 24 and bulletproof. Um, but I do have a few years before 50, and my beard is not completely gray yet. I've got a few darker color hairs right up in the mustache area right here. So I watch those daily. Um, but God's been good to us. Every year you have a birthday, it's the grace of the Lord that, that, that cares for us and, and keeps us going. So we want to give him all the glory for that. I'm not mad by getting older. I'm excited about it. Y'all know how you get when you get older, you just get sweeter. Some of y'all need to remember that, by the way. Before you get rotten. All right, Exodus chapter 20. Good. So many good things happening in the life of our church. I'm excited about it. 
looking forward to this weekend as we have just not only worship time together, Acts chapter 6, first couple verses we'll be looking there together, but also uh, Pastor Stephen with his explore. Am I saying that right? Debbie's over there. Hey, Debbie. Explore. Aaron's beside her. Y'all see Stephen and, and, and Debbie's daughter Aaron's right there. Wave, Aaron. There you go. Um, explore workshop. 2023, full up and exciting about that. We as a church not only support going through our generous giving, but we want to go ourselves. And a mark of a healthy church is one that is going and sending. And so we, by all means, I say all the time, either you are uh, going on a mission to go out and to serve and proclaim, or you're sending by supporting those who are going, or you're disobedient. So you got three choices, going, sending, or disobedient. And so um, we want to be those first two, going and sending. And that's a good, I'm excited about that. We'd love to have you come. Um, so a lot of good things happening, but we need to dive into a chapter that is familiar to everybody, I'm sure. Probably one that's m most familiar to you if uh, out of the book of Exodus in uh, Exodus chapter 20. Here in Exodus chapter 20 is where we find the Ten Commandments. <coughs> so hopefully um, y'all, most of y'all have been with us coming through this, seen the context of how we got here, but I want us to pray and then we'll look at this passage together tonight. Let's go to the Lord. Father, thank you for your kindness in bringing us together again. God, what a blessing it is. And uh, as I said, say so often, uh, help us not to take these nights, these moments for granted. As we gather together with your people around your word, what a blessing that is. So be with us now, Father, your spirit amongst us so that you'll take your word and you'll apply it to our lives so that we can be better followers, better believers of you. God, help us to, to know you. And as we know you, Father, help us to demonstrate that through how we live for you. God, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You have your finger, if you will, here in Exodus chapter 20. But if you will, flip over to 1 John. I just want to start us here in 1 John chapter 1 with a quick couple verses. A quick couple verses. Excuse me, chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. There's a passage here in 1 John. Well, I said chapter 2. I'm going to start back in chapter 1. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. That's verse 5. That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Christ, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not only for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. 
And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Now, if I could stop right there, the language there in verse 3 of chapter 2 is this we know that we have come to what? Know him. Our running theme so far in the book of Exodus has been the Lord saying, they will know me. They will know me. Pharaoh had a problem because he said, I do not know your God, right? And then the Lord says, oh, I'm going to make myself known to you. And so this theme that comes is that God will reveal himself so that you can know him. And so here, John tells us when he says, and by this we know that we have come to know him. Now, what is the evidence by which we can know we know him? If that's important, and it obviously is, that we know God, how do we know we know him? By keeping his commandments. So he says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. What we find here in the commandments in Exodus chapter 20 is the Lord revealing himself to us. This is God's revelation to us. In fact, these 10 commandments or 10 words as the Lord calls them to Moses were the first time God's word as we know it was written down. The first time it was written down. And so as these words come, God writes them with his own finger, the scripture tells us in Exodus 31. He writes them with his own finger on stone tablets so as to say, this will last forever, right? We, we'll find out a little bit more about that later. But as to say, this isn't on paper that's here today and gone tomorrow. This will last forever. God's word written by God's finger has been given to God's people so God's people can know him. So they can know him. So these Ten Commandments are not given then in such a way as to keep us back, hold us down, as to say, here's as far as you can go. These are not barriers by which we are to be contained, if you will. This is God's revelation of himself. And so those of us who know him want to keep these, right? If your fight is to say, those are too harsh, that's too much, I don't want to keep those things, then quite honestly what John is saying is you don't really know him. Because if you know him, you want to keep him. And John will continue to say his commandments are not a burden to us, but a joy. And how is it that the commandments of God are a joy. It goes back to we know him. We know him. And how do we know him in the New Testament? Through his full revelation in Jesus Christ. This law 
These commandments is God revealing himself fully and finally long ago in many ways. And as the word says, the old, the old King James says, in various and sundry ways, the Lord revealed himself. Finally, he's revealed himself in his son, Jesus Christ. And so we know God by knowing his son, Jesus Christ, who now gives us a relationship to the law by which we, in the righteousness of Christ, can know the Lord and follow him. Sometimes I know this gets complicated, but what I want us to understand when we come to the law is these things are for our good, not to suppress us, not to oppress us, not to hold us back from living our best life. These commandments are to help us flourish. They're to help us flourish. And to disobey them is actually what puts us in bondage and Sin and oppression. That's the difference here. The world sees the commandments of God or the law of God as oppressive, as too binding, too much, keeps us from doing what we want to do, right? Where the Lord says, no, these are actually how you flourish, how you flourish in this world. So a couple points I want us to look at tonight. I told you we, we uh, went through this. If you're just joining us or just Coming part of our church, I, I guess it was what last year, 2021 or so, we went through the Ten Commandments together in the in the fall. So I did each commandment on its own. It's still on our website. If you want to go back and listen to those sermons, God help you if you do. But if you want to go back and listen to them, they are still there, and you can see how we preached on each one of them individually. I'm not going to do that tonight. I want us to kind of take the big picture of what these are for us. Does that make sense to everybody? I want to try to look at that a little bit. So you have Exodus 19. God has brought his people there to Sinai. And in 19, he recommits this covenant promise with them when he says, verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings, brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. The Lord recommits himself to his covenant promise to his people. I will be your God, you will be my people. I will save you, and, and, and here the language, as we talked about last week, is dripping with redemption. He says, I'm the one, uh, you see what I did to your enemies, the Egyptians, how I brought you out of Egypt on eagle's wings, brought you to myself, not just to some geographical location like Sinai. The Lord is bringing his people to himself. God is saving his people to be with his people, to dwell with his people. So how does that holy God dwell with an unholy people? That becomes the question that the Lord is going to answer for them. And in saying, here's how I'm going to dwell with you, he states clearly to them, here's the requirements for you to live and dwell with me. Here's the requirements of this covenant promise that you have to keep if you're going to dwell with me. These are the requirements you have to have. And so here he gives them the Ten Commandments not to say, if you keep these, I'll save you. That's not what he's saying. In fact, he says here in chapter 19, I've already saved you. He'll reiterate that in chapter 20. I've already redeemed you. Now, because I have redeemed you, here's how you live. 
That's what the Ten Commandments are setting up. Because I saved you out of your sin, out of the bondage there, here's what, here's now how you live as my children, as my people together with me. So you see that in chapter 19. You see it again in chapter 20. The Lord comes down on Sinai, fire, smoke, quaking, speaking. The Lord lets his people know this is not just simply Moses' words. This is coming from himself. He even says that here as you go uh, in verse chapter 20, verse 18, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, the sound of the trumpet, the mountain smoking, the people were afraid, afraid and trembled. They stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us, we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. In other words, God is speaking so you will know it's him speaking. What's happening at Sinai becomes the signs and the demonstration of the power of God and the presence of God with his people. So there's not going to be a question whether Moses gave us this and this was Moses' law. This is God's law for his people. That becomes the point. And when God speaks, it says in chapter 20, verse 1, and God spoke again, just those three words are incredible grace to us. If God doesn't speak, we don't know him. Does that make sense to everybody? If God doesn't speak, we're still in the dark. When we say God spoke, what we're talking about is the word of God for us. So when God speaks, we must listen, right? And so here it says, and God spoke. God spoke all these words, and that's where we get this, these 10 words, if you will, saying, I am the, this is the preamble, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Again, I have already redeemed you. You shall have no other gods before me. The Lord is saying, I've saved you, I brought you to myself, here's how you live. How do these Ten Commandments work? Just a couple of different things I want us to notice. Uh, there is a unique status in God's words to these Ten Commandments. They're given a special name, the Ten Words, as it says. They're in, in, in Exodus chapter 20, in Exodus chapter 34. They're given a special name. They're given a special place. There's over 600 laws in the first five books of the Old Testament the Torah, the books of the law. There's over 600 given. But these 10 have a special place in all of those. They are the clear revelation of God for how they are, and they become the standard for really all the rest. It was these 10 rules, these 10 commandments, that alone were inscribed on tablets of stone with the expression, as I said, by the finger of God which is the metaphor for a direct revelation from the Lord. This directly came from him. They alone were to be written on the tablets and deposited in the ark, the ark of God, kept for the people of God. Now, we'll see the importance of the ark as it comes a little bit later, but just to give you a summary, the ark is meant to be a footstool, right? Uh, that's what it's referenced to, a footstool, so as almost like an, we don't want to, I mean, most of y'all have seen the ark because you saw the movie, I'm sure, right? Has everybody got that? Y'all know what I'm talking about? Indiana Jones saved that thing. So 
ultimately you know what it is. But the ark was designed like, an, like what we would call an ottoman or some sort of thing. It's the footstool. So the idea when the temple is built, the ark is the presence of God with his people. So it goes before the people. It marches out before the people. It represents the holiness of God. It, it's there as this footstool. In other words, it rests when the people rest. It rests in the holy of holies, the, the inner sanctuary, if you will, in the tabernacle. And there it rests because the, the symbolism is the throne of God is in heaven. His footstool is here on earth. This is where he's dwelling with his people. And so this ark has a special significance, and it was be these Ten Commandments were to be placed in that ark as the people marched out, as the Word of God leading them out with the presence of God. It was these Ten Commandments that had a special place for the covenant relationship with the people. When you make a covenant with someone, you have to say, what are the guidelines of the covenant? These are the guidelines. God is making a promise to you. Here's how, you keep, here's how we keep this promise. God will be who he is. You be who you're supposed to be in the idea of the promise. These ten go with that. Moses here will be seen as a mediator for these. In other, in other words, it's, it's him. God is using Moses to pass this teaching on through him. Interpreting here doesn't really happen. When he gives these Ten Commandments, Moses doesn't come down and preach them. He doesn't interpret them. They stand by themselves. He's just passing them along as this mediator who passes along these commandments to the people. Here, we see the signature of the Lord. If you, if you look at the second time it discusses these Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5, it simply says God put his finger on them to sign them. Therefore, what I'm saying is the Ten Commandments have a primary place in the Scripture that help us understand all the other laws. They're the fundamental principles by which everything else is built on. And so if you have these 10, then after this, you'll start to see some other laws that come up. But how those laws operate are almost like case law. Do, you Do we have any lawyers in here? If you want to admit it, you can raise your hand. If not, that's fine. You have what are the laws, and then you have case law. How are those laws interpreted before the judge? How are they interpreted in, in play? And so these case laws become the, the interpretation of these main laws in many ways. So what you'll see is you'll have these, these laws that become the standard, these ten, and everything else becomes interpreted based off of these. They become the foundation, the fundamental laws for all of the rest that everything else is built upon. Almost, in that way, almost a limitless capacity is within these ten. A range of moral issues can be spoken to from these ten. And really, not only a range of moral issues can be spoken to, if these ten were kept, then you would alleviate so many other crimes or sins that could be committed. Does that make sense to everybody? I mean, if you don't lie, then you're alleviating a lot of stuff, right? If you don't covet, then you're alleviating a lot of things. If you, if you don't commit adultery, you're Imagine if everybody in our society kept these Ten Commandments. Wouldn't that be something? Because that's the way they're designed. It eliminates by keeping these, they eliminate so much more sins or errors or crimes that could possibly be committed. They become the standard, the fundamental piece in God's overall law for his people. Here, though, these Ten Commandments have a place in context in the scriptures, they're anchored in this context. 
Sometimes we take things out of context from understanding them, but the context helps us understand them all the more. God is talking to a people who have spent 400 years in bondage and slavery in Egypt. And not only that, you say, well, not all of them have spent 400 years. Absolutely not. By no means had all of them spent 400 years. But all of them had gone through the last several years, which was the most oppressive of all of it. For much of that 400 years, remember, the pharaohs remembered Joseph, remembered the promises that were made to the, the Israelites. But it was those, that last pharaoh that began to forget it. He was the one that put them in, in an oppressive state. He's the one that made them slaves. He's the one that made them start building up Egypt. He's the one who started killing the babies, right? He's the one who made them make bricks without straw. He's the one that God demonstrated his power against. So they have just come out of this oppressive place. So they all knew what that looked like. They all knew what that, so this, these laws come in context. And see, that's what I've been saying with the 10 plagues that came earlier. They were in context as well. God is demonstrating as he systematically breaks down the belief system of Egypt by going through these 10 plagues. You trust in the Nile, I can turn that to blood. You trust in your livestock, I can kill them in an instant. You trust in the sun, I can make it go dark for days. You see how God is saying all the things you trust in are actually at my beck and call. I'm in charge of these things. God uses those to display himself. So now, as he comes out of this, he uses these Ten Commandments in the same way to say, here's what a faithful king looks like. A faithful king asks good things for his people, sets up a good society for his nation, sets up a, a society where you can flourish, not where you were oppressed. A good and faithful king does this. So you're seeing the juxtaposition, which is a great word I try to use as many times as I can. I think I used it this past Sunday. You're seeing these two kings side by side, right? Pharaoh, who oppressed the people of God, and God himself, the creator of heaven and your earth, who creates a space for them to flourish. One who enslaves them, one who seeks to free them. Free them. So these two things are coming in context. God is revealing himself all throughout this. And it's good for us to remember that. These laws are not new, by the way. It wasn't as if... and, and, and uh, Paul makes this argument in Galatians. It wasn't as if before the Ten Commandments came, everybody could lie. They knew they shouldn't lie. In fact, they learned that back in Genesis chapter 4, right? With, or 3, whenever Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden. Y'all remember that? They knew they, couldn't, they shouldn't lie. They had to face some consequences for that sin. Or, or they knew they shouldn't murder. Where did they learn you can't murder? Genesis chapter 4. Y'all know how that... Or they knew they shouldn't commit adultery. Judah found that out. You see what I'm saying? These things were not just new. They, they aren't new at Sinai. What's happening at Sinai is God is codifying or codifying his law for them in writing. What they already knew, he's now solidifying with his own finger for his people. These aren't new. They are just, they, they've been known all along, but now they are written down, so there's no question about it. This is how like things happen in life, too. You know what I'm saying? If you have expectations for someone in the workplace, you can't just say, here's what you're supposed to do. You need to put that in writing, because if you're going to hold them accountable to something, it needs to be clear what you're holding them accountable to. Does that make sense to everybody? And here, that's what's happening here. The Lord is saying, uh, 
brought you out to be with you. Let's be clear of how you're supposed to live before me. Let's be clear. And so he's codifying what's already been known, but he's putting it in writing so the people do not have any question. They're not guessing. They're not wondering how they're supposed to live. It's clear. It's clear. And so here he puts it in writing, all of these laws together, setting them out before Israel. Just a few months before, these people were groaning under, like I said, political, economic, social, spiritual bondage. These ten were not given to them again as if to put them in bondage, but help them flourish. Because in Egypt, they labored under Pharaoh, who claimed to be a god, and refused to recognize Yahweh. And thence he tried to prove he was God of the world, and Yahweh showed him he was not God. So the first three commandments make it clear to the people, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. In that context, they know we don't look to a Pharaoh. We don't look to another one. Egypt was full. Egypt was full of monuments to their God, to, to, to statues to their gods that they would bow down and worship. God's making it clear. You do not make any graven image of me. You do not make any graven image of me. God is making it clear in that that he is the God that they worship and they're not to make any graven images. They labored then in slavery for freedom, no rest. Remember, Pharaoh gave them no rest in Egypt. They were to make bricks without mortar and no days off. But God makes it clear in his law that there shall be a day of rest. You shall have a day and count it holy unto the Lord, and you shall not work seven. You shall work six and find rest in this. God there codifying the rest that he, he uh, puts before his people, the Sabbath that would be commanded to them, rooted back in creation. By the way, it's, it, and I said this again, I think, in my sermon. I want to make note again. There, that commandment number four, that day of rest, is using. Now, I don't often do this. Sometimes you do it, and it just, I'm not trying to make myself sound smart, but I did get a little bit older this week. And so you use it, and that happens. But the, 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 the Hebrew word is yom for day, right? And so in, in uh, Exodus chapter 20, there, the fourth commandment, he says God created the word in six yams, right? And on the seventh yom, he rested. That's, that's how he puts it. These Israelites, understanding it in this context, would only know a yom, as a 24-hour day. You see what I'm saying? As, as how we would know it. The sun rises, the sun sets. That's the only way they would know it. So as they put that in this context, they knew what day to rest on because they counted them up because the sun rose, the sun set. That's one day. This is part of my reasoning for still holding to the fact, though I may be a relic of some people, that the earth was created in six literal 24-hour days. They don't have the concept to do something anywhere else. It fits here because in Genesis chapter 1, it says the sun rose, sunrise, and sunset day one, yom one, right? And so first of all, to get into some idea that we got to accommodate some notions or theories about science by adding more to Genesis 1 than what Genesis 1 says, I just ain't got to do all that. I don't have to bow down to those kind of things, if that makes sense. Am I going too far here? I don't have to do that. I can believe that God's word says what God's word says and trust that if God wants to do it in 10 minutes, he can do it in 10 minutes. 
But he did it in, in, as the scripture says, and it fits in the context here, part of that. That's just a side note, an excursus, if you will, for, for you guys. You didn't even have to pay attention. But these had been laboring under slavery and oppression, and God says, that's not how we do it here. We will rest. We will rest. And he makes that a law, understanding the context. There was great destruction of the family in Egypt. As Exodus 1.15 tells us, they were killing babies that were born, male babies that were born. But here, the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. And the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery, to reestablish the preciousness of the family itself. To reestablish the heart of the family. A mother and a father must be committed to each other so as they do not go to another. And in, in, in such a way, also, the children must be honoring of their parents so that they would honor them and not mock them or despise them. God is reestablishing the family and affirming the family through these laws out of the context of where the family had been destroyed and beaten down. In Egypt, they were victims of genocide, of the murder of babies. But here, the Lord says, you shall not murder. Life is in his hands. You shall not murder. In Egypt, they were exploited and robbed of their goods, their talents. God uh, had, uh, I mean, Pharaoh had robbed them of all that they were, using their goods and their talents for his own, his own goodness, not theirs. But the Lord here creates an economic system even amongst his people that causes them to have property and to have creativity. In other words, you can't steal something unless somebody owns something. Even, I believe, even private property here, the what belongs to us. But our property goes even beyond that. It's not just what we own in things or space or whatever that may be. It's also our creativity, what we can make. In Egypt, they would make something for Pharaoh's gain. It belonged to him. But here's he's saying, whatever you make in creativity, whatever you own, you can't take it from somebody else. Don't steal it. He's creating a, even a system in this that is for them to flourish in community, to use their gifts and talents. In Egypt, they were victims of injustice, obviously. To have integrity here in justice and to have honesty, it tells them you shall not bear false witness. Don't lie. It's the only way you can really survive in a society is by dealing in truth. Truth, by the way, even in our own society today, is a commodity that's very hard to come by. But here he says that's what we live by, truth. You see, all of these commandments are coming out of a context for these people where they had been oppressed. And I say that often, but you can see maybe how they've been oppressed when you compare it to these Ten Commandments. When you compare it to a, a king who tries to beat them down, who kills them at his own will and pleasure, who steals and robs from them and takes things that don't belong to him that they do, that they accomplish their work. A king who rips their families apart. A king who, who lies about them, who lies about his own standing and sets his whole economy up based upon that lie. A king who murders when he wishes. Coming out of that context... The Lord says, now, I am the leader. I am the king who wants you to flourish. We're going to establish it this way. Do y'all see then how God is revealing himself as different from the gods of this world?
He's revealing himself as different from the gods of this world. He's establishing himself for his people and setting up, therefore, a society that reflects the character of God, not the character of man. Setting himself up some, some commandments that reflect his honor and his system, not the systems of this world. That's what he does here at Sinai. Not negative, but positive. Flourishing, blessing, liberty. And this liberty does not and cannot flourish or come in chaos. There has to be order. And that's what he sets up here at Sinai. These ten are the building blocks of a God-honoring society. Order. There's often been then, when you look at these, a rash, a, a, a two levels of this. And I think most of y'all have understood this from early on in your Christian walk probably, is that there is a vertical aspect and a horizontal aspect to these laws, to these commandments. A vertical aspect and a horizontal. If you see this in these two tablets then, you maybe can look at this as how the Lord Jesus himself explains it over in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew 22, we'll take there for example, when asked which law was the greatest, Jesus, and, and I'm sure, like I said, y'all know this well, can quote it yourself, but I'll get you to lay your eyes on it in Matthew 22. If I can get there. The Pharisees heard in verse 34 that he had silenced the Sadducees. They gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In this way, Jesus here trying to be stumped by the Pharisees explains the very commandments of God, these ten, perfectly. The first part, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Those first four commandments deal ultimately with that. You shall love the Lord. That's first. The commandments, keeping the commandments is not about duty, but about love. You do it out of love for God. And then the second commandment is just like it. In other words, it's right there with it. It's two sides of the same coin. It's the exhale to the inhale. You know what I mean? So you can't have one without the other. Love your neighbor as yourself. The vertical, love the Lord your God with all your heart. The horizontal, love your neighbor as yourself. And both of those are seen in keeping these commandments. You keep those commandments, you fulfill what Jesus said are the greatest law. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. That's how it's defined. How do we define loving God? We keep his commandments. What we need to know, there is, there is so much in this world that I think distorts this idea of love. People say love is love, right? Well, ultimately, that's not what the scripture says. God, who is the author of love, as 1 John said, God is love. We don't know love unless we know the Lord God, right? God is the one who first loved us. The author of love gets to define love for us. It's not some nebulous thing that we get to make up out there. True, caring love is defined by God himself who invented it. Y'all know what I'm saying when I say the Lord of God invented love? 
It flows from his character, from his nature, John says. And so God gets to define it, not us. We don't get to define what love looks like. God has defined it for us. And it's defined by us following after him, flourishing by pursuing him, by keeping his word, keeping his commandments. You say you love God and you don't keep his commandments, First John says, you are a liar. You are a liar. You say you know him, you don't keep his commandments, you're a liar. This is how it's defined. And so this, this vertical and horizontal understanding, Jesus says are these two great commands, love of neighbor, love yourself. But also here is a scale of values for us then. Not just those two, but we also see a scale of values in these commandments as well. God obviously comes first. Worship him exclusively. exclusively, Without images, without abuse of his name, worship him. Um, if you want to change your life, change what you worship. That's the way the scriptures understand it. In other words, you are what you worship is what the psalmist says. The psalmist talks about uh, the gods of this world. It's a refrain that's seen not only in Psalms twice, but also in Jeremiah. So seemingly went through the gods of this world have eyes but cannot see. Y'all remember that passage? They have ears but cannot hear. They have feet but cannot walk. Hands with no power. They are deaf, blind, and the scripture says dumb. And then what does it say next? Those who worship them are just like them. Which gives us an understanding in scripture that we are what we worship. Ultimately, that's what defines us. Who is it? What is it that you worship? You are what you worship. You're defined even by that. And so when we worship the Lord, one true and living God, that defines us. We are children of his. We are followers of his. We belong to him. He's the good and faithful one. We belong. If we worship anything else, we are just like what we worship. And so to say we worship God and not keep his commandments, which are a revelation of himself, is error. Does that make sense to everybody? You following my logic? God is revealing himself. So if you say, I follow God, then, or I worship God, then your worship is going to be defined by how God has defined it in his scriptures. And to say you worship him is more than just raising a hand on Sunday morning in a song. It's more than just getting a good feeling riding down the road when you listen to Christian radio. It's more than that. It is the everyday walk of the believer. Every act where we are pursuing after the Lord is an act of worship. It's an act of worship. It's what Paul says in Romans. We lay our own bodies on the altar in sacrifice in Romans 12. We have not conformed, but we've been transformed by the renewing of our heart, our mind, so that we are the living sacrifice. We're worshiping. And that's where these Ten Commandments teach us is that God comes first. He defines it. We worship him and we worship him alone. But we also see how God establishes in these this scale of a healthy and benefit to society as a whole. When Jesus starts his Sermon on the Mount, remember, he gives his Beatitudes and he, he tells, here's how you are. And, and remember, the Sermon on the Mount is important to the Ten Commandments. 
Because Jesus comes and he shows a deeper level to these commandments in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard you shall not commit adultery. I tell you, if you look upon anyone who is not your husband or your wife with lust, you've already committed adultery. You see how he takes that deeper? He does that in several different You have heard that, that, that whole kind of uh, um, um, equation. You have heard, but I came to say, you know, so the Lord is, Jesus is showing. But how does he start that? He starts that by saying, I've come to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. And then he says, and you are salt and light. You become the ones who display it for the world to see. How are you salt and light? You're salt and light by displaying God for everyone to see. And that's what we see in the Ten Commandments. If the Ten Commandments are, are a, a better society, a better way, a flourishing one. And so we become salt into a society that's desperate for some flavor, right? We become salt into a society that's desperate. How does salt, does anybody know how salt loses its saltiness? Does anybody know that? This, you have to be a chemist, which I am kidding that's a joke I have to say that real quick because Ten Commandments say don't lie um, no but NACL I did look this up in fact my first sermon I ever preached at my home church Red Bank Baptist Church 1994 I was 19 years old and knew everything and I got there and I preached on salt and light right so I had three points for salt and three points for light and I preached for 55 minutes. It was good. <laughs> I, we've lost that tape somewhere. I don't know where that, that cassette is. <laughs> it's giving y'all my age there. Uh, we don't know where that is. But I remember studying for that. By the way, those people were my home. My dad was the pastor. They had to love it. You know what I'm saying? There he is. And so they couldn't go, God, that was too long. That was terrible. They had to say, great job. It was great. Good audience. NACL is one of the strongest bonds that can be made between those two, sodium chloride. In other words, it's almost impossible to break that bond once they're made, once it's made. You can't break it. So when the Lord says, if the salt is no longer salty or loses its saltiness, it becomes useless, no good, or a phrase we may know, good for nothing is what it says. In other words, you take that salt when it's become useless, and what do you do with it? He tells you you just throw it out there on the trail to be trampled. So how does a salt, when you can't break those two bonds, how does it lose its saltiness? I, I, I didn't know until I went to Russia in 1995. And I was eating with some Russians, and there was a little kid that had been playing outside. He was dirty, dirty. And in Russia, they didn't have salt shakers. They just had a bowl of salt, right? And he comes in and he wanted some salt. So before his mama could say anything, he takes this nasty dirt. Y'all ever seen those kind of hands where it is dirty and sweating? That's what he did. And so he takes his dirty hand and reaches in the salt bowl and does this. And then he goes and puts it on here. Only none of it comes off his hand. It's stuck to it. So his whole hand salty. And you know what I said? That salt is good for nothing. 
how is it that we become or lose our saltiness? It's when we let the sins of this world live in our life when we're seeking to be pure. Does that make sense? When you become dirty. And so when you keep the law of God, you don't hide that under a bushel, you shine it. You don't let your saltiness become not salty anymore. You keep it according to his word so that it can be a refreshment to our society, a preservative as salt is, a a flavoring as salt does to our society. What we see here with these Ten Commandments is that we're supposed to live in such a way that other people notice we follow a different God than Pharaoh. We follow a different king than the king of this world. We live in such a way that other people say, who, who, Who sets your standards? We don't try to find the bare minimum by which we can get by. We live according to what God has stated in his word completely and fully. And in that way, we shine the light of God and the salt of his word upon a people that are desperate for it. That's how we help preserve things in this society. We see in his word that he's helping us. This is how you stay salty. You don't lie. You don't commit adultery. You don't murder. This is how you stay salty. You you honor the Lord. You honor your parents. You don't take his name in vain. And you only worship him. That's how you stay salty. Because the world is setting up their own rules and their own standards. The world is setting up what they want to live by. And that is going to lead them not to freedom and flourishing, but more oppression and the bondage of slavery and sin. But we have God's rules that we live by. And when we live by that, we spread some salt and some light into a world of darkness that needs something different. That's what these commandments are for. Not only that, but also these commandments play a central role for our family and the establishment of our family. The family in our society today takes shots every single day. But God has established what the family looks like. Husband and wife, don't commit adultery. Love each other. Because that reflects who God is. He's a God who makes a covenant promise. You, as a husband and wife, are ones who've made covenant promises as well. Keep those promises just as God has kept them. Love one another. Don't cheat on one another. Don't lie. You made vows. You're bearing false witness if you go to another one. Keep them. This is what's best for us. Children, honor your parents. This is what's best for us. This helps us flourish. And then, of course, the individual life. Apostle Paul, out of all these I've said, I had not got to that number 10. You shall not covet. The Apostle Paul says, hey, when it came to the first nine, I was good. Now, he knew he wasn't. He just thought he was. He's reflecting upon how he thought about himself. When it came in Romans chapter 8, 7, and 8, when when it comes to those, I could say I haven't murdered anybody. Now, he couldn't according to the Lord's standards because the Lord said you shall not murder. If you hate your brother in your heart, you've committed murder already, right? He couldn't. But in his mind, he could check it off the box. I've honored my parents. I haven't taken the name. In fact, they were so careful not to take the Lord's name in vain. they They wouldn't even use the name Yahweh. They would substitute another name for it. Adonai, that's where we get that from. Because they were too scared to use his name in vain. And so they were careful to keep these laws. But you know what Paul said? I thought I was in the clear until I got to number 10. Because number 10 reminds us that it's not just the outward actions that God governs, but our inward heart and mind as well. 
That coveting takes place in here. That coveting comes from here. And Paul says, when he said, thou shalt not covet, I knew I was a sinner. The world can look at me and say, oh man, he's kept the law. Look how fine, upstanding young man this guy is. But in my heart, I knew that I coveted over and over again. God, as the king, not only governs our outward actions, but our heart and our mind as well in these 10, setting up what's best for us. God, society, family, life, property, all of those things, all of those things are established. The health of them are seen and established here in these 10 commandments. And when you don't follow after these, it will destroy everything. We see how adultery destroys families. We see how murder destroys lives, right? We see how lying leads to questioning and heartbreak over and over and over again. We see all of these things. And so these things, God's commandments here are for our good to set up a life and a society that not only knows him, that not only knows him, but even through how we live can proclaim him. Now, God's law is not abolished by Jesus. It's fulfilled. And remind you, what did Paul say? Paul said that this law is a taskmaster for us. It's through this law that we find out what? We are sinners. When the scripture says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, you know what it's saying? All of us have failed at keeping this. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of that sin is death. So God's grace to us in revealing himself through his law is that we see that we are desperate for his righteousness that we cannot earn or gain on our own only to hear the good news. He's done it for us through Jesus Christ. Jesus has kept it. The covenant relationship that was needed to be kept has been kept by Christ. He's done it. He's kept the law for us. So the righteousness that we don't have, it's only unrighteousness, is now gained and given to us through the righteousness of Christ whenever we become one of his children, not just in his kingdom as subject to the king, in his kingdom as sons and daughters, in the royal household of the Lord. That's what we're welcomed into. The law teaches us, teaches us our need for Jesus, which y'all know the old phrase, in order to get a person saved, you got to get them lost first. This law teaches us, I couldn't measure up. Never could, never have. And were it my own, my own righteousness that would have to get me there, I would fail every single time. So therefore, I do not boast in myself. What I've done or what I've accomplished, but only in Christ who has done it for me who's kept it for me. And so now in Christ, we keep the commandments because we, they are a joy to us because we've been forgiven. 
We've been redeemed. And God said, you know what? I'm going to even help you more. I'm going to take out that sinful heart and give you a new heart. I'm going to do even more help for you to follow after me. I'm going to not only give you a new heart, I'm going to give you the spirit to live inside of you. My spirit to dwell within you, the scripture says. And not only am I going to do that, that same spirit that's going to live there is going to write the law of God on your heart, not on stones or tablets anywhere else. You know what it means to follow me. You don't have to guess. You don't have to wonder. You know what it means to follow after the Lord. So as a believer, you are fully equipped by the power of God, not only redeemed, but fully equipped to follow him and pursue him and keep his word. His commandments are a joy because we know him because Jesus has introduced us to him through his own blood and righteousness. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for who you are and what you have done. You are so kind to us. And so, God, may we rejoice in your word today that you have not left us guessing, but you have been clear throughout of who you are and what you've done. And today, today, may each and every one of us who have admitted and know that we are sinners, because your word tells us we all are. None of us have kept your law. None of us have, have followed it completely. But today, we rest in the one whom you sent for us who kept the law on our behalf, who fulfilled the demands of it in my place. What I could not fulfill, you fulfilled through your son, Jesus Christ. And so, God, we praise you today for what Christ has done through his perfect life, his death, and his resurrection. He's not only fulfilled the law on my behalf, he has also received the punishment that I deserve for it. God, he's wiped it clean. So as 1 John says, he's the propitiation for our sins. So today, we know you because we know Christ. And in knowing you through Christ Jesus, we follow you through your commandments, through your word, and they are a joy. Make your word, your commandments a joy to all of us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all so much. We'll see you all Sunday. Sunday. Say it properly. <laughs>